Uh, welcome back to the Mr. Prime Minister's podcast. I am your host, Chris, as always, not today joined by my brother, Matt, who is currently holidaying somewhere, undisclosed location, with the family, which uh, technically isn't a holiday for, for most of us, uh, but I'm sure he's having a good time. But uh, due to some scheduling conflicts, obviously, uh, we couldn't record the podcast this week, so I thought, look, let's do a bit of a retrospective of the ones we have covered, the three <laughs> that we've covered so far. Uh, look, there's so much to go into. Even with Prime Ministers who were only around for four months, like uh, good old uh, Chris Watson, you do find these gems, and either because I didn't research enough or I didn't know enough at the time, uh... I wanted to reevaluate and relook at those things and, and just uh, maybe just touch on them uh, because I think they're interesting and we just didn't cover them in, in the last podcast for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the point of this little jaunt. Uh, some really interesting facts and uh, some controversial ones, I have to, have to say. But I thought, uh, look, this is this one I could do by, on my own, I think. Um Wow, it is a weird dynamic. I'm just talking into a microphone in a, in a room. No one else is here. It's kind of it's actually quite nice, nice calming effect that's happening right now. And then you just get in your own head a little bit. Yeah, uh, I don't know how podcasters do it. Those podcasters just talk without anyone to bounce off. It's uh, it's a weird uh, it's a weird dynamic. Anyway, look before I go down that tangent and just get into my head a little bit too much. I'm just going to start reading some interesting facts. Let's start with uh, Edmund Barton. Now, we touched on this so much in our inaugural episode. Uh, number one, Edmund was known for his drinking. Um, something that he was known for even before he was Prime Minister. Uh, probably probably more so than he was Prime Minister. Uh, I think it only got worse, but... Uh, it was probably really bad throughout his life. And uh, as another thing we kind of did mention was this type of alcoholism probably was a little bit more expected back in the day, but I found it probably wasn't so much. Uh, he was accused of being drunk quite a bit. Um, in particular, uh, I found a excerpt from a labor journalist and also another fellow uh, politician who was a Labour politician at the time, John Norton. Uh, in 1902, he accused uh, Barton of being pretty drunk. Uh, and he had to tell the story of a time when, uh, back before Federation, uh, Barton was so drunk uh, at a rally, at a public, big public meeting. Uh, and uh, Mr. Norton just did not like that. Uh, he accused him of seeing him snoring drunk on several occasions and uh, had also seen him addressing audiences while under the influence of drink. Uh, specifically, he, he commented on an uh, incident in Brisbane uh, that happened about uh, 1901 at this time. And uh, I quote, he said, got so disgracefully drunk and incapable that medical aid had to be called in so that uh, Barton could be toned up in time to address this big meeting. And on that occasion, your condition, Edmund's condition, and demeanor, the result of your drinking, so shocked some of the audience ne nearest the platform 
that they left in shame and disgust. Uh, so I found that one from The Guardian, but uh, yeah, that's a really interesting little tidbit there that uh, even though maybe some of it was acceptable, you know, you could drink on the job, no one would care, but uh, maybe maybe not so much. Uh, maybe to the point where you're about to fall off a stage, probably, probably a good time to call it out. So yeah, good on you, John. Uh, John Norton for being a knock. <laughs> but also, I don't think we also we we did, we never covered what his drink of choice was. That was quite hard to find, but I eventually found it after the podcast. And uh, I think uh, I think knowing what he was into maybe also helped uh, understand him a little bit better. But uh, he was really into rum, rum and milk. He would start the day drinking rum and milk. It's not a bad choice. Uh, it's funny with these, all these alcoholics, they, they never stick with one thing. They're always going to move around with other spirits and things. Uh, yeah, started the day with rum, moved on to sherry for brunch. Brunch, brunch was a thing. Some beer at lunchtime, maybe a stout. And then uh, in the evenings, you would relax with a whiskey. I feel like that's a good day. Oh, uh, I forget, actually, uh, he would also sip wine at dinner. And then follow dinner with liqueurs. So yeah, he he got on it, and it sounds like he he didn't uh, he didn't stop even throughout his prime ministership, and we he definitely did it uh, when he was a minister in the legislative assembly in New South Wales. How does it really impact his legacy? I mean, obviously not that much because we don't really know about it. But uh, we or we know for a fact he was nicknamed Toby Tosspot. But uh, does that, I mean, it's interesting now looking at it, it probably wasn't hugely ideal trait to have back then. But then you look at other prime ministers like obviously Bob Hawke, who was really into it, was respected for it, was regarded for it. Uh, But apparently he didn't drink when he was a prime minister, fun fact. Uh, everyone stands by that. He he didn't touch a drop of of alcohol, Bob Hawke, when he was uh, in the top job. Which I don't know. I don't. I, I, I don't know how you can prove that. But apparently, that's what that's what people say. I don't know if I believe that. I don't know. Especially when your image is largely based on how much you can skull a beer. Um. Yeah. So that's uh, the Barton, but uh, I, it's interesting to see why he drank, right? Like, was he just trying to, to numb away the pain of some sort? Oh man, I'm going really deep, aren't I? I'm really going to like psychology. <laughs> but I feel like everyone thought uh, he he must have he must have known that this was something part of his legacy, part of his image. But he, he, he was an alcoholic. I guess he couldn't stop it. I guess people really didn't know what to do. They just kind of shamed him for it. That must have been tough. Um, God, he was a bit of a loser. I mean, even uh, even his colleagues like Alfred Deacon, um, Arthur Hunt, um, mentioned that he had some serious flaws. Um, and he had inattention to detail, which I think we're all guilty of 
as a prime minister, but also he wasn't very punctual. He he was late to a lot of things, which I think is so interesting. How did he end up being prime minister? There just seems so many faults. He was just in the right place at the right time, and he just loved federation, and he just liked to talk to people. And he was a decent orator, orator I should say. Yeah. I think he just got into the habit. He was just so self-indulgent, they say. Um, and he just, yeah, he just created these habits that led to him being <laughs> a drunk, even in public. But uh, it's funny now going, we've done three prime ministers. He's probably turning out to be the least interesting of the three that we've done so far. And I think Matt would agree. I wish Matt was here so he can confirm that. But I think he, I think he would agree. <laughs> I think Deacon, Deacon's definitely. I mean, I haven't even scratched. I don't think we've even scratched the surface of Deacon. Speaking of episode two, Deacon, we mentioned, and I put this in the description. But I want to be clear. I don't want to go down this road and be inaccurate. I want to be. I want to have some sort of accuracy. I, want, I mean, I, we might sound like idiots. <laughs> we haven't done our full research and all I've done is read Wikipedia. I mean, that's kind of like what I'm doing. But I want to try and be accurate. I think I mentioned that uh, Alfred Deacon wanted to invade New Caledonia. That's incorrect. He wanted to invade a country at the time which was named New Herbides, which is today Vanuatu. So he, technically he wanted to invade Vanuatu. Um, yeah, I just thought I should clarify that if, in case all the New Caledonians got upset. But the biggest thing, and the reason why I wanted to do this podcast was just to touch on something I found while in my research at Deakin. And and this this happens quite a bit when you do go a bit deeper than Wikipedia, which I do, by the way. I do go deeper than Wikipedia. I do try and find things that are interesting. Um, I may may one day read a book, but if I want to do a schedule, I have to read a book every week, which I'm not going to do. But in research, generally for a, online, you would come across tidbits and random pieces of information. A lot of those are like just random PDFs from historians, um, and they just appear. You just kind of come across them. You don't know where they're from. You don't have any context. You just have these <laughs> bits of information. So I found this one, um, and it was written by William, William Coleman, who is a uh, he's the editor of the Agenda, which is a, a journal of policy analysis and reform uh, at the ANU, and he's a reader in the School of Economics at ANU. So uh, I mean, he knows his stuff. He he had an interesting article that I came across um, around the six problems that he had seen in various biographies of Deacon. And he kind of outlines them. Mainly not because of inaccuracies, but people kind of glossing over some of the things that he was known for, um, particularly his spiritualism, um, the him defending Frederick Deming, um, who may or may not have been Jack the Ripper. Uh, just really outlining things that uh, not many people know about Deacon or kind of cover. But one very interesting one that I that I saw here, 
And and just a preference. This is not something that uh, I care about or I feel like is relevant to Deacon as a person, but for his legacy and also for historical accuracy and also maybe even some of his decision-making at the time when this was probably not something you want to tell people. Um, so William, uh, Mr. Coleman, uh, uh, covers his sexual orientation. And uh, he started this point by put simply, was Deacon gay? In commas. And uh, the answer, it seems, Coleman says, is fairly gay. That's the start of the sentence. It seems fairly gay. He, he posits that um, some, of the, some biographers don't go into this enough or gloss over it or don't explore it. And even Coleman would uh, say in this that th- you know, this is not something that many people might, might find interesting. But for biographers who are trying to give an accurate portrayal or a in-depth analysis and an in-depth biography, especially for someone who was such a big influence on not only just Federation but uh, those early foundational years um, in Australia's government, federal government. So with that in mind, let's just go through some of the pieces of evidence that Coleman's kind of collated from various sources throughout the time, and this is all out there. So put simply, was Dick Deacon gay? Seems fairly gay. Uh, Coleman says there was a, a pattern emergence of close attachments to men either a decade or so older than himself uh, or about a decade younger. <laughs> so there's various people in his life that uh, he was very, very much close to. Um, there are other things um, that may suggest he, he was gay. Uh, he predominantly only hung out with men and barely any women. Um, his remarks on women's physical attractions were rare and terse. Um, I mean, take that what you will. I mean, just because you only hang out with men and really women, you might just be shy, <laughs> right? Uh, or you just have other things in mind. I feel like that's probably a lot, a lot of very uh, uh, gifted people probably have to deal with this, right? Like just, they just have different attention spans. They have different things that they're into. And women and men may not be his thing. He might be asexual. Let's talk about that. I don't know. Anyway, there are other things that suggest that um, he was dealing with his sexuality in some way. So he described uh, some of political allies as handsome, uh, and some extremely handsome. Um, he also said, uh, as one biographer described, um, as Deacon is saying, one of the most handsome young fellows I had ever seen. Uh, and this was to a youthful supporter of Victoria. Uh, and he also um, described some of his close friends uh, in very interesting ways. So Barton described ha- as having eyes of remarkable beauty. Um, so uh, Coleman says the, the significance of these observations is reinforced by Deacon's disdainful references to the, in brackets, heterosexual love shack that was New South Wales politics of the day. 
Uh, Reed is a squire of dames. <laughs> so Reed's the fourth, uh, our, our fourth Prime Minister upcoming episode. Look, a bunch of little things, right? A bunch of tiny little suggestions about uh, his sexuality. But there, are, there is other stuff as well. There was, um, yeah, there was a, a prayer that he had composed at the age of 32 um, that even biographers today don't really understand um, what he was trying to talk about here. Um, but some think it, were, it may have been a, a cry for help. It may have been an admission of something that he was dealing with. And some people kind of connect the dots and say it was his sexuality. Um, I'll read the prayer because I think it's really interesting and uh, it, it really does hint at something there. Whether or not it's his sexuality, I don't know. But this is what uh, he wrote. So, after, uh, after again a long silence, something has been awakened in me by the burning iron of remorse. Aid me, O God, to atone for the past and if it be possible to undo even more, remove the evil done to others. After this, enable me to conquer the evil which it has done to others. After this, enable me to conquer the evil which it has done to myself and to the root of that evil within me. So, yeah, Coleman then goes on to say that uh, some have speculated it was a piece about his sexual infidelity, uh, which left him burning iron of remorse. Um, but again, look, there's no evidence here. There, there's no secret letters to, to gay lovers. There's no pictures of the time. Like there's, there's nothing to suggest this. Um, and because he was such a spiritual man, it might be just a simple infraction of his spirituality. He may have, I don't know, read a science book. I have no clue. But look, the fact that people are talking about it um, and it's not something that we've really, really heard of. And if it, there is a multiple truth to it, would it have been interesting to know that Deacon was our first gay prime minister? I mean, that's got to do something to your... Uh, the way you think about everything, I guess. Especially in that time where you had to keep everything secret, you couldn't be open about it. I mean, that surely must do something to you, right? Uh and yeah, whether or not uh, it did or not, I mean, we we can only speculate. Again, it's all speculation. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that because that was something I found out after uh, the po the podcast, and I felt like if we if I mentioned it to Matt, I think that's the whole thing. We'll probably just talk about that for the whole podcast and nothing else. Uh, look, I something we can just all ponder. Maybe. Um, I would like to get Coleman on the podcast if this, uh, if this goes anywhere because I feel like he, he has a lot to say um, about, uh, about Deacon in particular. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, other things I want to kind of cover. Let's chat about Chris Watson. Now, Chris, uh, probably my second favorite so far, right? Interesting dude. One thing I didn't cover in the, our last episode about Chris was that he was actually expelled from the Labour Party at one point. This is during uh, World War One, and uh, a lot of Labour politicians were a bit more at the at the time they were 
anti-military. They didn't believe conscription. And most of Labour kind of believed that there were a few exceptions. And Chris was one of them. He was very much of a, uh, a, um, a supporter of conscription, I should say. So the Labour Party didn't, did not uh, agree with conscription. They, they just didn't, they just, it was part of their, their values, I guess. But uh, he was uh, expelled from the Labour Party along with other um, high-profile high Labour guys at the time. And uh, I, I wanted to mention that because, uh, I mean, it, it goes to show that he, he did have a, a bit of a backbone. I mean, four months of a prime ministership doesn't really give you any sense of a man or any sense of a person. And uh, I felt like he did come across, if you just read him, um, the fact that he only lasted four months, that he... He just didn't have the gumption, you know. Didn't have the backbone, or things were in his favor. Um, but it's kind—it's of, kind of the opposite. He—he—he he, he did have. He was a natural-born leader, uh, no, no doubt about it. Even Deacon probably could admit admit that, and even people in his own party. So it was interesting to see a lot of people uh, describing him as being not a good speaker, which kind of goes hand in hand with leadership. Uh, so I think that was kind of partly a reason why people don't really respect him now. and But also, and this is something I was trying to get across in the last podcast, where I think I cut out most of it, was um, he, he really doesn't, uh, in, doesn't, what Chris represented in those days really doesn't align with what I think the party would, would kind of see him as today. And... It's, I just find it interesting that Labour people, and not, I'm not saying that, that uh, people in Labour should revere him and, and kind of adore him and, and put him up as a, on a pedestal. There are many reasons why they wouldn't do that. But I thought some of those reasons, uh, you know, his commitment to being very individualistic and his commitments around... Um, having a say while others uh, have very different ideas. And this is coming from a party where they were very much aligned on everything. They had to they had to vote in a block. Um, they were very regimented. And that's partly due to their success was that um, uh, that commitment to, 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 to be one party, essentially. Chris probably didn't see it that way. Um, but yeah, I really kind of—he—he—he fascinates me because I can't get a grasp of thing. I, I can get an idea of what Deacon was after. I can kind of understand what what Edmund's about. But uh, yeah, it's it's hard with Watson. He he just didn't get an, enough of a, a shine. But anyway, yeah. So expelled from Labor Party around uh, the time of World War One uh, because of his principles around um, you know standing up for the nation, you know, helping take part in something that he thought was a bigger piece of Australia being on the world stage was showing support for, for, for the UK and enabling conscription. Labor didn't like that. But yeah, look, I don't, I'm just petered out here, but I just wanted to mention those three things. I mean, I could talk again, I could talk a, a lot about it, but I just wanted to give a quick update uh, and just uh, clarify some things, do a bit of correction. Um, I'm having so much fun doing this, by the way. It's, it's a lot of fun. If everyone's still listening to this, uh, thank you. Really appreciate it. We're definitely going to keep doing this. I love it so much. And uh, I really do like 
researching these people, trying to understand where they're coming from and what they have done all those years ago and seeing what remains, seeing what's still here and still what some of the things they did and, and said that uh, are, is still part of our fabric as a nation. Wow. Put that on a tea towel, right? <laughs> but it, it, in all honesty, it, it, it's just fascinating. And it's so strange that um, other countries have picked apart their history to the point where there's almost little ambiguity about what they meant and what they said and their intentions and their uh, commitment to doing what they want to do, you know. But I think for us, it's such a different, different world. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm still going on this journey, but it seems to me that Australia just doesn't have that appetite to really figure out, or maybe I just haven't read enough books yet. It's probably right. I pro probably, we probably all know what exactly Deacon was up to, what Chris wanted to get out of his little stint and what, and why Edmund drank himself to death almost. Um, but what I'm trying to say is it's, it's not as part of the public consciousness as, you know, when you look at places like America, um, they probably have a better understanding. Anyway, that's my interpretation. I'm talking out of my ass. You do that when there's no one else in the room. Anyway, look, I'm going to stop it there because, uh, I'm just going to keep rattling on. Um, but yeah, look, we're going to keep doing the podcast. We're going to keep going through the prime ministers and we're going to keep learning that's the aim to learn anyway thanks again uh, bye for now